Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sandeep Kandar, a thoracic surgeon from Virginia Cancer Specialists, with a message about the importance of referring patients with resectable stage 1B through 3A non-small cell lung cancer to a medical oncologist consistent with national guidelines. I believe that all of these patients should be referred to a medical oncologist early in their treatment pathway. Using biopsy samples taken before or during surgery, medical oncologists should order guideline-recommended molecular testing to help inform therapy decisions. In my opinion, it is important to talk to these patients about recurrence rates after surgery, as well as molecular testing, which may impact treatment decisions for eligible patients. These conversations should happen either before surgery or shortly thereafter. Overall, a multidisciplinary team-based approach may help drive informed decisions so patients can receive the right treatment options for them. This content is sponsored by AstraZeneca. Welcome to another episode of Same Surgeon, Different Life. Today, I am joined by a legend in the field of cardiothoracic surgery, Dr. Joseph Duraney. Dr. Duraney is Director of Pediatric and Adult Congenital Heart Surgery at the Mayo Clinic and Professor of Surgery in the Mayo College of Medicine. He is a world-renowned surgeon with specific expertise with Epstein's anomaly, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, robotic heart surgery, and multi-redo cardiac surgery. His research interests include innovative valve repair techniques, heart failure, and regenerative medicine or stem cell therapies in congenital heart disease. Beyond the phenomenal accomplishments that exceed any from an academic CV perspective, Dr. Durrani is a Renaissance man, one who seeks to develop skills in all areas of knowledge and in the arts. He is a diehard musician, having played tenor saxophone for about 25 years. He is diligent in this pursuit, having a music studio in his home where he practices religiously each day at 4.30 a.m., the so-called 430 Room, as well as sharing his love of music through his jazz band, Take Two and Friends, and a second eclectic ensemble of pediatric cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, and other medical professionals from children's hospitals across the globe called the Baby Blue Sound Collective. These comprehensive traits served him well as the world stopped in its tracks with the global COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Draney was the 56th president of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons during the 2020-2021 year, a year marked with unforeseen turmoil. Yet his leadership with grace was a calming effect for all of us. Join us as we reflect on his incredible journey crisscrossing the country during training to becoming one of the elite cardiothoracic surgeons and leaders in the world. And through it all, he has never lost sight of the touchstones of family and friendship. Dr. Joseph Draney, on today's Same Surgeon, Different Light. Hello, loyal listeners. It gives me great pleasure to be joined by one of the most amazing leading lights in our profession. Uh, I'm joined by uh, immediate past president of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons and uh, leader extraordinaire at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Uh, Joseph Duraney. Dr. Duraney, uh, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Varghese. Tom, I guess maybe I can call you. I, yeah, that's okay. We'll be, we'll be informal. It's all good. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I feel honored and privileged to, uh, to, you know, to be interviewed. I mean, um, the STS is, uh, I bleed the STS and anything I can do to be helpful, to motivate, inspire some of the younger surgeons in, uh, in this specialty. I'm all there. Absolutely. I want to take you back a little bit and uh, let's start with your origin story. I mean, we know that uh, they're in superhero movies and comic books. Uh, Everybody loves a great origin story. And your path is quite unconventional, to say the least. Uh, Tell me about your uh, childhood and uh, specifically the inspiration that your father gave to you to pursue a career in medicine. My father was an immigrant family from Syria. 
Um, he, he was born in the United States, but his parents and his older siblings were born in, in Damascus and they immigrated here. They came in the 1920s and uh, they came right into New York Harbor and then uh, they settled in Patterson, New Jersey. My, they spoke Arabic. My, his, his parents, my grandparents did not speak English. They were silk weavers. And they were, you know, they were, you know, back at that time, they were a poor family. My father, when he was in grade school, he shined shoes um, and after school. And so he actually somewhere along the line, we lost his original shoe shine box, but it, it was a little wooden shoe shine box that said, shine, Mr. Five cents. Imagine that. Um, wow. And so he used to do that after school. And then he would, his responsibility, he was the second to youngest of six children. Um, there were four boys and two girls, and he was responsible for buying the bread for dinner on the way home. So it was like in downtown Patterson, he'd be shining these shoes, you know, on the street corners, and then he would go to the bakery and he'd buy the bread and he'd walk home from school. And then, you know, they, he'd do homework. And then the, that was his job. But, you know, he was actually a very good student and he was the only one in his, in his family to go to college. And he went to college with the initial intent to be a pharmacist. And his, his, he really, um, his grades were so good that the faculty encouraged him to go a little bit above and beyond that. And they encouraged him to consider medical school. So he actually finished college. He went to Seton Hall University in New Jersey, finished college in three years, then went to Georgetown Medical School, uh, did his residency in Boston um, and spent a few years in the military in the United States Navy you know, toward, he was on a ship that was uh, on the European side. Um, he was fortunate to not actually have to participate in any wars. This was in the 50s now. And then he, he met my mom, who was uh, the, the sister of one of his classmates in medical school. And uh, her background is interesting too. She's a teacher by trade, you know, by profession. Her father, they were uh, from Ireland and England, her, his, uh, my mom's parents. But her father, they grew up just outside of Connecticut, and, and her father, as a child, grew up in New York City, and he started as a, in, in grade school working for Western Union Telegram, and he, used, he started off delivering telegrams on his bicycle in New York, and then he actually, he, he rose the ranks at his whole career was with Western Union. He actually got to be the head cashier in the Manhattan office, he had a handgun in his desk drawer because he was the head cashier. And um, so anyway, my mom was a teacher. I ended up with eight younger sisters. Uh, I'm the oldest of nine children with eight girls after me. Um, six of them are teachers. One is in the business world and one is a nurse. They're all wonderful. They're all gems. They've all been supportive. They're all scattered with their own families now. So we don't get together that often except for an occasional holiday, which we did do for Thanksgiving this year, which was kind of nice. Both but, of my parents, sadly, are deceased. So it's, you know, it's just the children now. That's, that's an incredible background. Uh, now, your father, though, was uh, a family, uh, he was in family practice. Uh, he was in family practice, yes. He was in family practice, and his practice, for the most part, was in Connecticut. We grew up uh, in Norwalk, just outside of New York. And in the late 1980s, 88, 89, we had uh, had a lake house up in New Hampshire. Actually, right, the lake was right on the Massachusetts, New Hampshire line. So we had been vacationing up there since I was a kid, you know, in the 60s. And by 1990, I think as a family physician, he was getting frustrated with the practice of family practice because there were so many, you know, all the subspecialties were really coming into vogue then, you know, the 80s and 90s, there were subspecialty, you know, training programs in both medicine and surgery, they were really becoming more formalized. And so he was, and so many subspecialists were sort of moving into that Western, Southwestern corner of Connecticut, that as a family physician, you know, he started his practice, you know, doing simple fractures and delivering babies. And by the late 1980s, he was doing histories and physicals and monitoring Coumadin levels. And he felt, you know, unfulfilled and he, and he really sort of wanted to get back to the business of family practice. So he went and he, and he went back to practicing family medicine up in the rural, you know, hills of New Hampshire and Massachusetts. And so they moved there, you know, by 1990, and he did the last half of his career in the, you know, upper New England area as a family physician. 
And correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, he, his practice involved a lot of house calls and it was really the yeah, throwback he, in the traditional way of practicing. Oh, medicine. yes. Yeah. He he was making house calls all through my childhood. And it was a. I mean, I really admired, you know, I really admire the family physician. You know, they they really have to have a pretty good understanding of a lot of things. And he was a very astute clinician. I mean, he was just he was old school physical exam. You know, he could, he could figure a lot of stuff out just by the history and physical. And then of course, you know, the imaging and the laboratory stuff would support it, you know, and confirm it. But uh, he was the real thing. That's amazing. And, but the desire to go into surgery uh, and more specifically cardiac surgery, cardiothoracic surgery, that came a little bit later. That came Very after late. you started medical school. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, I went to medical school with the intent to do something when I was in college and I was uh, very interested in emergency medicine and I was volunteering in you know, the local emergency room as I was growing up through the high school years. And then I went to college in New York City and I was just, you know, I was so mesmerized with the sirens every night and the ambulances and the trauma and the urgent problems that needed to be tended to. And so I did all this volunteer activity in the emergency, in the emergency medicine field, thinking that that's what I was going to do. And when I went to medical school, uh, I was at Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and they actually had an emergency medicine program and they had the National Poison Center right there at the Georgetown University Hospital. And one of the, the head of the ER there became so, sort of a mentor for me. And and so I I really thought I did a, I had a little interest in orthopedics early on and that fizzled away relatively quickly, but the emergency medicine, medicine thing persisted all through medical school in my senior year of medical school, all of my electives were in emergency medicine and trauma. And it wasn't until the very, very end of my third year of medical school that I, I was doing my surgical rotation and then cardiac at the very end of that. So all my electives were already scheduled that were going to be starting a few weeks later and I rotated on cardiac surgery and um, I worked with Dr. Wallace, who, you know, is another sort of icon. He was a, uh, he was Dr. a Mayo Dr. Robert Bruce Wallace. Is that correct? Robert Bruce Wallace. Yeah. And he was a, he was a Mayo Clinic surgeon. And then he, you know, he, he actually was chair of the department of surgery at the Mayo Clinic at the age of 39. <laughs> and then he, you know, and they have finite leadership terms at Mayo and, you know, his was about a decade. And, you know, so by the time he was 50, you know, he wanted to stay at Mayo if he could retain a leadership position. And they, you know, they just, they wouldn't allow that because it was just sort of a rule. And so he moved back to Washington, D.C., which is where his home was. And he assumed the, the, the leadership role at Georgetown. And that was my exposure to him. And I mean, in one day, that was it. My life changed. I, I just wanted to be like him. I mean, he really was quite influential and really had quite a presence the way he carried himself, the way he interacted with patients and families, the way he conducted himself in the operating room. It was an instantaneous cell just like that. It's unbelievable. So it's incredible how an exposure to an amazing mentor like that can change somebody's destination. Well, I tell the medical students now when they're trying to decide what to do, I tell them to try not to worry because I, I think there are very few people that really have it figured out early on of what they want to do. And if they do, it's because of a personal experience, a family experience where they had an exposure that, that was quite impactful. I think 80% of people decide based on people they work with more than the actual specialty. I think it's the individual that switches someone on to a passion about a specialty. And so I try to reassure them to go into every rotation with an open mind and, and you know, uh, things will fall into place. I'll tell you a, a, an interesting story. I was having, this was now, I was a, uh, I was on the staff um, at Mayo and I was early on in the staff and I was having lunch with one of the cardiac anesthesiologists and his son, who was a medical student, was home for the Christmas holiday and he came into the hospital, was shadowing his father. We had lunch together. And so he was a third year medical student and he was at, it was in the middle of his third year. And I said, so what are you going to do? And he said, you know, I, he says, you know, I like this. I like that. He like rattled off five things that he liked. And I said, geez, do you have a big problem? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, you said five things that you liked and you didn't name one thing that you love. And he said, what do you mean by that? And I said, when you're 50 years old and you have to do it at two o'clock in the morning, you know, on a Saturday night, you're going to miss a family event the next day. Liking it is not going to be good enough. You got to really love it. And actually that his father told me after the fact that that was a very helpful, you know, 
you know, comment that I made and it really helped him decide, you know, how he was going to choose which specialty he was going to go into. We actually ended up going into surgery and then he went into one of the general surgery subspecialties, endocrine surgery, I believe. But anyway, it's the people that switch you on. That's a very incredibly profound uh, insight. The image that most people get when they think of a famous person at a leading institution like the Mayo Clinic is that they were in the, at the Mayo Clinic for all of their training and they just remained there for the rest of their career. Even though your professional side, uh, you've spent a significant amount of time at the Mayo Clinic, that really isn't you because you actually, during your course of training, crisscrossed the country uh, yeah, I did. quite a lot. Could you reflect on that unique perspective that you brought or that you've been had in your life as a result of training at a lot of different places? Yeah. So I was, I went to college in New York city. I went to medical school in Washington. And when I went to college, I, I had, Oh, I loved Georgetown university. And I was conflicted at the time of going to college where I would go, but, you know, being one of nine children, I will say that my God bless my, my, my father. I mean, all nine children got a college education and a few of my sisters went on to get graduate degrees and he walked every one of them down the aisle. So I feel very, very fortunate to have had, you know, a father that and a mother that actually supported a higher education and really, 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 really encouraged it and really pushed it. So I was trying to be somewhat responsible and not, not you know, go to a really expensive college that then was going to create challenges for medical school. So I went to Fordham University, which was managed while I did live on campus. I didn't have to commute. I mean, it was not that far, but I was able to live there. And I had always wanted to go to Georgetown. I love Georgetown, love Washington, D.C. And so I went to medical school at Georgetown. And then during my uh, residency, I did two years of research up in Boston. And that was always an intention, too, because I had met this cardiac surgeon in Boston who, ironically, was also an immigrant from the Middle East. He was from Lebanon, though, not Syria. And we have a number of people that have gone into cardiac surgery because of him. And um, so I spent two years there, came back to Washington, finished my general surgical residency at, in, at Georgetown. And then when I was applying to residencies for cardiac, I thought I was going to go back to Boston. I, I was very close friends with the people I was in the lab with. And I, you know, my, one of my dear friends was a Brigham resident. And we thought we would just be residents at the Brigham together. I mean, I love the place and New England was more or less my home. And at the time, there were only a portion of the programs that were in the match and some that were not. And you applied three years in advance, not two years in advance. And so, uh, you know, I, it, it became a dilemma because the Brigham was not in the, they were in the match and they were not going to, you know, Larry Cohn was not going to, you know, was not going to make any promises, even though, you know, he would say you're competitive and so on. And so I hadn't applied to the Mayo Clinic. And when I went over everything with Dr. Wallace and, I, and, and it, for a letter of recommendation, he said, how come you're not applying to the Mayo Clinic? And I said, Dr. Wallace, I remember it. I was just so naive and ignorant. I said, Dr. Wallace, I've lived my whole life in New York, Washington, D.C., and Boston. What am I going to do in Rochester, Minnesota? And he said, you shouldn't be so close-minded. You should at least go take a look at it. I said, fair enough. So I, I got the application. I interviewed I got it called for an interview. I went out there and uh, the Mayo Clinic was not in the match. So I interviewed there on a Monday and it was in the wintertime and it was snow and there were delays. And it was actually, I barely got to my interview <laughs> because we got, we got stuck with delays and I didn't arrive in Rochester till like two o'clock in the morning, the night before my interview. But anyway, the long and short is I interviewed the next day and I met the, all the various faculty in thoracic and cardiac and I instantly fell in love with the place. I mean, it's literally like a kid going into FAO Schwartz, you know, toy store. I mean, the ORs were so busy. There were so many cases in cardiac and thoracic. I mean, you couldn't just not just love it. And so I, I enjoyed it. I went back home and then a week to the day, I get a call. Gordon Danielson, who was another sort of icon in the specialty, called me and said, you know, the faculty met and you did well and we'd like to offer you a position. And I said, well, I'd like to discuss it with Dr. Wallace. And he said, you have one week, talk to Dr. Wallace and get back to me by phone call or telegram. Ironically, the telegram comes back into the story again. Um, and so Dr. Wallace was, was away until Thursday. He came back. I went and met with him. We went over all the programs and I said, what do you think I should do? He said, I think you should go to the Mayo Clinic. I, I think your personality would suit it well. And uh, that's what I did. And I never looked back. 
And uh, Dr. Wallace, I will say, was he, he, he had a unique way because he inspired a lot of residents to go into cardiac surgery. Frank Pagani, who you uh, probably know, know very well. Yes, (laughs) we were classmates together. We went through medical school and residency together. And there's a there's another half a dozen people that went into cardiac surgery that were a year or two ahead or you know behind. And um, he had a really wonderful way of knowing who would fit well with which program. And many of the people that started in those programs stayed in those programs. I mean, you know, Frank Pagani's still in Michigan and. John Conti, who was in Baltimore at Hopkins, was there for a while. He recently, in the last few years, moved. But anyway, he, he could match people to, to programs and cultures in a, in a, in a really uh, predictable way where um, there was a lot of success. That's incredible. And, uh, and then after your surgical training, your core surgical training and cardiothoracic training at the Mayo Clinic, but you then went to Loma Linda for I, your congenital training, correct? I did. I went and did congenital training. And I went to there's kind of a funny story about that too. I, I had signed a contract to do my congenital fellowship at Toronto uh, hospital for sick kids in Toronto. And then Leonard Bailey, I don't know if you know, Len Bailey, he was the, he was uh, the pediatric heart surgeon at Loma Linda who um, championed neonatal heart surgery, a neonatal heart transplant. So he was one of the visiting professors at Mayo and we were visiting and everything. And one of the things that when I, when I went to do the fellowship, it was already, I had already been told that I was going to stay on the staff in Rochester so I was going to do the fellowship with the intent and understanding that I was, I was coming back to Mayo. Um, and so one of the things they wanted me to learn was infant heart transplant, because that was something we were not doing in Rochester. And so I, we were talking about this over lunch and Dr. Bailey actually trained in Toronto. And he said, well, you know, you'd get wonderful training in Toronto, but you won't get any transplant training because they're not doing transplant there at the time. And so, you know, I ended up, he said, you know, Dr. Williams is really a, a, he's a wonderful, you know, leader up there. And I'm sure, because I had signed a contract to go there for my fellowship. And so Dr. Bailey said, you should come to Loma Linda, you know, you'd love Southern California, you'd give you a break from Rochester and all that. And so I called Dr. Williams and I explained the situation and, and he was very understanding. He said, that's not a problem. You'll get wonderful training with Dr. Bailey. You need to kind of fulfill the expectations for, you know, the Mayo Clinic practice. We'll have no problem filling the position. And that was it. I went to California and came back. You know, you've gone up and down the East Coast. You've got the yeah. Midwest and now you went to the West Coast, but then you came back. I, I'm and, a Midwestern guy now. I, I've come to grips with the fact that I've been here for 25 years. The Midwest, I consider home. So throughout this journey, I, we know that we, we actually heard uh, extensively during your presidential address for the SDS about how big an influence music has made in your career. Where did that come along in terms of your exposure to music, how it became yeah. hardwired as part of your personality? Well, I took piano. I've, I've always just loved music. I love listening to it and I love lyrics. I love writing, you know, is another one of my hobbies. But I, ironically, I took piano lessons when I was in grade school. When I was in high school, I went to a Catholic grade school um, and I went to a, a Jesuit prep school for high school. And when I was in um, high school, we had, you know, it was, it was not uncommon for Thanksgiving dinners to have some of the nuns over for Thanksgiving dinner. Some of my sisters, in fact, are named after a series of nuns that, you know, we were exposed to during our childhood. And so we would always have one or two over so that they, you know, they, if they weren't, if they weren't with their family or something, so they wouldn't be alone. And so it was Thanksgiving, my senior year of high school, and one of the nuns that was over for Thanksgiving dinner was a music teacher and an English teacher in grade school that I had had when I was in grade school. And we were talking about music and I was telling her how much I love the saxophone. And she said, you should just take lessons. Why don't you just go take lessons? And so that Monday after Thanksgiving, I stopped at the local music shop on the way home from school, rented a saxophone, started taking saxophone lessons. And then when I went to college, one of my college roommates well, I was at Fordham University. He was a business in the business school there, but he was going to night school at the Juilliard School of Music. He went on to be a professional musician. And so he kept my interest in music when I was in college and I would take lessons and I played off and on. Medical school, things kind of, you know, fell through a little bit. I mean, I didn't give it up completely, but I was pretty, you know, focused on, on studying. Uh, although my apartment was right next to the Duke Ellington School of Fine Arts, which was right across the street from Georgetown University Hospital. 
And when I was a resident, that's where I used to practice because I couldn't practice in my apartment building. So I would go to the Woodwind classroom after hours when the janitor would let me in um, in the Duke Ellington School of Fine Arts, which is a high school level school in Washington, D.C. And I kept I kept up with it. I, I when I was doing research in Boston, I took lessons at the New England Conservatory. And I've just, you know, always kept it in my uh, in my lifestyle. It, it's gone through phases where I've been really on it. And, you know, I've, I've taken breaks from it. But since I've been on the staff, you know, since, you know, the late 1990s, early 2000s, I mean, it's been a religious part of my everyday life. I wanted to tie in a little bit with the music uh, from a quote that uh, you have said it before in the past. And so I'll read the quote first, okay. uh, specifically about cardiothoracic surgery. So you had quoted, this is when you were named um, STS president. One of the things that you reflected upon is the field of cardiothoracic surgery. And, and your quote, Dr. Graney, was cardiothoracic surgery is a specialty that's constantly innovating and evolving. It's a specialty that has a unique interface with technology. It has a specialty that combines important qualities such as intellect, critical thinking skills, judgment, technical abilities, and perseverance. Not a 100% perfect match. But I can also kind of see the same thing in that discipline and yeah. in creation of music as well, correct? I mean, it's yeah. it's very it's rare that you play the same piece exactly the same ways. You're constantly uh, tinkering. Do you think both of those helped uh, play a part yes. in how successful you've been? Very, very much so. And and one of the things that not many, not many uh, people know, I mean, I've shared it with some, but it was probably about five or six years ago when... It, well, actually started before that when I started my leadership role at Mayo, you know, they have finite terms for leadership at Mayo. They're eight year terms. I did nine years. And but when you first start, they put you through these various leadership courses. And the the person that was head of leadership and development at Mayo was a real uh, music aficionado. And he said, are you aware of this uh, gentleman in, in, in Minneapolis who is a professional bass player? But he teaches, he teaches leadership skills through music on the bandstand. And I said, no, I, I don't know him. And he told me his name. His name is Michael Gold. And he said, you two should get connected. Well, you know, fast forward now seven, eight years. I met Michael Gold. He is a professional bass player. He has a graduate degree in education. He had been teaching leadership skills through music on the bandstand, mostly in the business world you know, Kellogg and, and at Northwestern, Carlson at University of Minnesota, and various venues, mostly in the Midwest. And he makes the point that there are leading roles, there's supporting roles, there's communication, there's listening, there's just all sorts of things that are paralleled on the bandstand. And so he and I got together and we put together a leadership seminar that went on for five years at Mayo, where we did this for the medical industry. We did it for the healthcare providers. And it was, it ranged, we, of course, me as a surgeon, we use the operating room as the bandstand. And so, you know, so the, 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 the seminar was with a band. We had my band right there. And we, we talked about, you know, you know, leading roles, structured things that, you know, where you're being strict about honoring the music, then improvisation, you know, people doing solos and, and, you know, how the other people in the band support the soloist or the vocalist. Um, when somebody's struggling, how you back them up, listening. I, listening and communicating is so key for the success in any workplace, but certainly surgery. And so we did this for five consecutive years, a three-hour seminar with the band. And it now, Tom, has evolved into... I've, I've been very, very blessed with a number of leadership opportunities between my, my, the Department of Cardiac Surgery at Mayo, the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, the Congenital Heart Surgeons Society, and the American Board of Thoracic Surgery. I was encouraged to write a book on how I view leadership as someone who's been, you know, has had the privilege of doing it in many different venues. And so he and I are putting a book together now on leadership where we're using um, at times music as a metaphor to exemplify all of the important points that at least I think are valuable to people in the, in the, in the healthcare workplace, particularly the operating room. That's bad pun intended music to my ears. Yeah. I, I'd snap that book up. And of course yeah. I, I will track you down Dr. Randy, because I want a signed autograph yeah. <laughs> for yeah. that book. 
But that, that, that's incredible, that perspective. This is, uh, since you had mentioned about um, your, your, the, fortune, uh, the, uh, the roles that you've served, I wanted to pivot a little bit towards your unique presidential years. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you were named president of the Congenital Heart Surgeon Society, and then about a year later, president of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. And of course, there was a little bit of overlap because CHS has, has yeah. a two-year term. SCS right. is a one-year term, but as we all know, we're, we're still knee-deep in the midst of a pandemic during this recording. Yeah. Your, your presidential terms were not smooth sailing, so to speak. Well, they were, I was confronted with a lot of challenges. I think that, that my, second, my second year of the two-year presidential term for the CHSS overlapped with my one-year presidential term at the STS. And I would say that the biggest challenge that I had with my CHSS presidency was a lot of the a lot of the uh, the disruption and attention drawn to the media to concerning or below level performance in the pediatric cardiac surgery arena. And a number of my friends, you know, were sort of you know pinned up in the media. Programs were showcased for poor results. It was a very very difficult time. And the, the congenital practice, congenital cardiac surgery, as you know, you know, we've been doing public reporting and transparent, transparency on the STS website for many, many years now. And, it, and a lot of people access it, people in the medical profession, the public, parents, uh, you know, payers, a lot of people access this information. And so that was a particularly difficult time because the 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 congenital community was very very unsettled and there was a lot of controversy raised about you know are we presenting the data properly could it be presented in a different way should we be looking at other things and so it was disheartening to see some of my you know the congenital community is a very small community i mean there's a couple hundred of us in the country and we more or less all know each other we're like an extended family and everybody, you know, for the most part, are very, very close friends. I mean, I probably have most of their cell phone numbers in my phone. And so, you know, when you see friends, uh, you know, who are also colleagues elsewhere, you know, getting, you know, you know, getting this kind of scrutiny and, you know, and being written up in newspapers and, you know, being on the, you know, the evening news, and, and it's very, very upsetting. So, so this was, you know, all over this was all going on during my presidential term. And so, you know, we, we started exploring alternative ways to look at the data, to present the data. Some of this is still ongoing now. Should the data be presented in a different way on the website so that it's understandable for parents and, and, and patients as well as the medical community? And so, you know, that was a, you know, that was a tough time. Um, there was a lot of pressure and it, I, I felt like it was, you know, hard to keep the majority of people happy. There was always a, somebody disgruntled or um, nobody was calling with good news, so to speak. It was always with a problem or an ask or, a, you know, um, a request. And then, you know, my presidential for the, the term for the STS started. And of course that, you know, within a, within a month or so, you know, we were confronted with the pandemic. And then of course, life changed for everybody. There were no exceptions, no gender exceptions, no age exceptions, no location exceptions, no, no geography, no country. I mean, it was, uh, we all were affected in, sadly, in, in, you know, what began as a very, very bad way. And, uh, but I think over time, we learned how to adapt and we learned how to rebound and, and we learned how to refocus and we learned from mistakes and we're all in a different place right now, even though it's not gone away. I think we're all better than we were, you know, 12 and 18 months ago. Yeah. And I wanted to read a couple of quotes uh, from your STS presidential address, uh, really uh, j just to extend the, the conversation specifically about the pandemic. And, and you, your speech was entitled uh, Resilience, Hope, Unity. And so like you started off the presidential address by saying standing still and not operating can feel like prison for the CT surgeon. But then you, you kind of guided us through this journey of how, you know, being a physician comes with uh, many responsibilities, including navigating the sometimes dysfunctional medical system. Uh, this dysfunction diminishes professional 
fulfillment has, has led to a moral crisis. I mean, this was even before the pandemic and yeah. the pandemic actually made it worse. And then, as you, as you said, the data suggests the need for continued reform in postgraduate training and career practices of all healthcare providers. As you look forward, uh, you know, as you correctly point out, the pandemic's not quite finished at the time of this recording, but it seems like uh, you had also brought about that there is signs of hope that the, the field seems to be coming together in terms of unity. Uh, can you reflect a little bit about, you know, we're all type A personalities and we're competitive by nature, but to exist in this new world, we need to come together and collaborate. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I've, I've thought about it a lot, Tom. And every, I mean, every word was carefully selected for that presidential address. Um, I, as I mentioned earlier, I love writing and I need to mean every word, every stitch in the operating room, every note that I play on my horn and every action that I do with someone um, or for someone. I mean, everything needs to be with a, with a purpose and it needs to be done right. I think that the, you know, the pandemic was a tragic thing that happened. I, but I think that we, we learned a lot from it. And I think the cardiothoracic surgeon, you know, we are very fortunate. We are, we're gifted with many skill sets. We can work in a lot of different locations. We can work in an emergency room. We can put, we're very, very good at a wide uh, spectrum of invasive procedures. We don't have to be doing cardiac surgery or doing a lung resection, but we know how to place tubes, lines, intubate. We can work in the emergency room. We can work in the ICU. I mean, we are a very marketable specialty in the time of crisis, and our personalities are very well suited to work well under pressure. And that is what I observed during the pandemic. There were no cardiac surgeons that were shy in a way from jumping in. I mean, if, 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 if you or I were asked to go to the emergency room to help out, there would be no hesitancy in trying to determine whether that was something you were going to do. You probably would have been in the emergency room before the ask was even finished, the sentence was even done. And so we, we, we thrive on action and we perform well under pressure. And we are given a lot of different skill sets that can be helpful in a lot of different circumstances. And um, we found things to do um, while we couldn't do our regular day job, so to speak. And um, I felt really, really proud to be a cardiothoracic surgeon during the time of the pandemic. And the other thing that, you know, back to your comment about the innovation, I do think this is a specialty where we have innovation has been a word that's been synonymous with everyday work that we've been doing back since the 1950s when cardiopulmonary bypass came into the picture. I mean, look at all the things that's going on in thoracic surgery now with um, less invasive approaches, robotics and everything else. And, and we, our brains are wired to just naturally to want to keep on advancing the specialty either technologically, either, either it's, it's either with devices or it's process innovation. I mean, whatever it is, we are, we are very naturally, you know, our brains are naturally wired to be thinking about those kinds of things because that's the kind of personality that gets drawn to the specialty to begin with. And I make the point to, to all the residents coming through that we are the one specialty where we have the maximum interface between technology and the patient and the staff. And if you take, you know, you, you know I mean, neurosurgery to, uh, to, uh, to, to some extent too, but we, we have this constant interface. It's not just a doctor and a patient. It's a team of people in the ICU or a team of people in the operating room. It's massive amounts of technology. It's hemodynamic monitoring, it's heart lung machines, it's robots, it's anesthesia machines, it's you name it. And so, you know, our awareness about all these things is so critical. And I, I, I tell the residents when they're coming through, particularly the general surgery residents, that's the difference between this specialty and other specialties. You cannot just be worrying what's going on at the end of the forceps and the needle driver. 
You got to be worried about that and the people around you, the pump, what's the temperature, what's the blood pressure, what's the anesthesia doing, what was the last blood gas, how's the urine output? You got to worry about all of it. And the successful cardiothoracic surgeon is the one that can do that well. And that's just who we are. And I love it. And then, of course, you also added the point on top of all that is beyond the operating room, the critical role all of us need to play in advocacy, being that patient's voice, not just on the day of surgery, but beyond, uh, correct? Well, yes. And, you know, I'm not sure if you're going to if you're going to drift into my my interest in humanitarian outreach, but I, I was, <laughs> yeah, I thought that might be where you're going. Well, yes, I do. I mean, I think that, you know, th- listen, the number one cause of death is heart disease and lung cancer. Okay. And the most common anomaly for the most part is a congenital heart anomaly. So our specialty is front and center everywhere all the time. We are the most impactful, one of the most impactful specialties out there, even though the specialty as a whole is small relative to other specialties. We're, we're a small group of people, but our impact and our ability to influence and change lives is probably one of the greatest. And that's one of the reasons that I'm drawn to this is because the, 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 the response and the recovery is relatively immediate. I mean, at least in cardiovascular, you know, surgery, whether it's children or whether it's adult, you end up with a serious problem. You end up with an operation. You end up with a, you know, a hospital stay that's maybe days or a week. You end up with a recovery over six weeks. You end up with a return to near normal, if not normal life with, in many cases, a normal life expectancy. Now it can't get any better than that. When you are doing that day in and day out, it be, you become an addict with that. And when you have your first chronic patient that's hanging out in the ICU for a month, it's devastating for you because you're so used to the opposite. And when you go, and because of that patient profile, we have to advocate for for anybody with heart disease, because when you can correct it or fix it, you, you change the quality of life for that person in a way that is so meaningful and so longstanding how could you not do it? It's not to take anything away from any of the other specialties in medicine. I respect and admire everybody for what they do, but what we do is really impactful. So when you start getting into low and middle income countries and marginalized patient communities, you have to advocate for them because if you can take care of a kid that's got a congenital heart defect where they're five years old properly, they could go on and live a near normal life. They can be a functional member of society. They can work. They can bring. They can give something back, and we have to do that. I mean, we have to advocate for those, for you know, for those people. And and I think that our specialty does it incredibly well. One of the best of all. Um, obviously, I want to be mindful of our time, and we could be having these kind of lengthy conversations for days. Uh, but. Uh, one of the final points that I wanted to touch on during our interview, um, uh, Joe, was really one of the other themes you did touch upon during your presidential address. Yeah. Um, and it's really about the we- wellness and balance. Yeah. Um, you know, so a, you, you co- from, quoting from your speech, you said, some of the strategies that I've used include exercise, prioritization of tasks, better time management so- skills. And um, this is this one that really caught my attention self-forgiveness for recognition that not all the things on the to-do list will get d- done by the perfect me. You know, that, that was, uh, you know, eye-opening for many of us because, you know, as driven individuals, I don't know if it's humility or the willingness to share with all of us that, you, you know, there are even times when you don't get that perfect result, that self-forgiveness is also intentional. Could you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, you know, one of my mentor icons who I never met is Dwight Magoon, who's another legend in congenital heart surgery, whose career was stopped, you know, sadly in his 50s because of Parkinson's disease. And he was, he was brilliant. He was really one of the most gifted technicians in the operating room. And all of this was only offset by his humility. He was just 
he was truly a giant and a gentleman. And there's actually a paper written about him that's titled that, The Giant and a Gentleman, about an interaction between him and John Kirkland back in the 1950s. And when he started on the staff at Mayo Clinic in 1958, he wrote a, a memo to himself about what he was, how he wanted to act and behave during his professional career. And some of the point, points that you just made were those kinds of things. He was going to, and I, and, and so I took that list of four or five things that he did, and I wrote my own letter to myself. 20 something years ago, there's about 12 things on it. It's, it's going to be published, by the way, somebody convinced me to get this, this, uh, I'll tell you about that at the end when we close. But I wrote a letter to myself about how I was going to act and behave and what I, who I am and what I wanted to be as I, as I marched through my career. And it's a combination of things that include the constant need for self-assessment, self-education, advancing the science, being ever aware of the, of the needs of the patients and their families, being compassionate, understanding that despite your greatest efforts, there will be disappointments and it should not cause you to um, become too negative, that I want my greatest legacy to be to pay it forward. I want this place to be a better place um, after I'm gone. Dr. Puga, one of my mentors, told me when I started on the staff, my goal is to make you better than me. Now, it takes a lot of guts and a lot of courage for a surgeon to say that. That's not an easy thing. We all have big egos and we all want to be the best. And I actually have adopted that philosophy and I really do my best to try to bring on the next generation and all of these things, I think, is what it's all about being a cardiothoracic surgeon. It's the ability to adapt and evolve, be self-critical, be open to criticism and feedback, try to make some contributions along the way, whether it's a case report, whether it's a big series, whether it's a, a multi-institutional prospective trial. We all can give something in some way, and I really want everybody to do that. We should not settle for just being okay. We, we have to continue to try to go above and beyond understanding that, you know, we're going to fall short here and there, but it's the, it's, the, it's the discipline and it's the perseverance and it's the wish to do it, to me, I think matters, you know, in some ways the most. That is so inspiring. In our final moments, uh, tell me a little bit about the 430 room. Well, you know, my family is my greatest legacy. Let's just be honest here. We spent a lot of time talking about work, but it's, you know, at the end of the day, you know, my family is number one on the list and has been and always will be. And my wife is a gem and we've been happily married now. We'll be coming up on 30 years. I have three unbelievably wonderful children, all of whom now are graduated out working, making their own contributions. And they enjoy hearing some of my stories. I I learn things from their workplace and bring it to my workplace. They learn things from my workplace and bring it to their workplace. It's just remarkable, you know, the back and forth. And, um, you know, that generation keeps us young. You know, I mean, um, they know they're connected with social media. <laughs> they know the music, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, my song list in the operating room. You know, I, I try to make sure there's some contemporary music, you know, that the young helpers in the operating room can relate to and they don't, they don't get bored of Carol King and James Taylor. But uh, what I was going to uh, say is, is that when I would come home from work at night, my family got my time and my attention. And I was very intentional with my wife and secretary when I started on the staff of each month, understanding what it is that I needed to be to for my family. You know, is it the first jazz concert? Is it the football game? Is it, you know, the kindergarten graduation? Whatever it might have been, I was very deliberate to make sure that I would be available for that, understanding that I will not get to everything, but I needed to get to the most important things. So I'd make sure I wasn't on call. I tell every resident this when they leave the program, that they have to take control of their schedule and they have to be very intentional. Otherwise, they're going to be on call and they're going to miss the five-year-old birthday party. And and this specialty is a specialty that tends to control us more than we can control it. 
And if you don't put some guardrails up around certain things, it'll get out of control. So my family is my greatest success. And, and so the 430 room came about that if I wanted to have time for me, me time, I had to do it when everybody else was sleeping because I wasn't going to come home and practice my saxophone. So I had to do it when everybody else was uh, abed, in bed. So I, would, I, get, I love getting up early in the morning. I get up between 4 and 4.30 every morning. Doesn't matter what's going on. I like some peace time in my music room. I get a little bit of exercise on the Peloton for 20 or 25 minutes. I have coffee with my wife every morning religiously for 20 or 30 minutes before I come to work. And you know that's the way I've lived my life for 25 years. And so the 430 room, it's a room that's devoted to me on my own time when there's no competition for anybody else in the family who of course has the highest priority. That's, that's incredible. Um, in our final moments, Dr. Draney, any final words of wisdom? I mean, I know that uh, it, it, we really deeply appreciate your time that you're spending with us today, taking us on the journey. But any final thoughts, uh, for, especially for the younger listeners uh, to this podcast? I think, first, we, have, we are part of one of the greatest, if not the greatest specialties in, in the whole profession. It's, you know, whether you're on the diagnosis side, whether you're on the treatment side, um, whether you are a surgeon or, you know, you're an, a, you're an attachment to cardiothoracic surgery, we make a difference in, in, in the lives of, of, of just many, many patients. And um, it's a grueling specialty, but it's a rewarding specialty. It's a, it's a high risk specialty, but the personal gratification that you get out of it is, is exceedingly motivating and inspiring. And, and so I think for the young listeners, work hard, make time to play so that you, you, you can offset the stress of work. Actually, I think you are a better doctor if you have um, something to resort to. And as we've talked before, the pandemic, I think, has taught us that, you know, most of all, that having balance in your life uh, helped uh, many people get through the pandemic. And those that have no balance in their life, I think, uh, struggled the most. And sadly, we saw a lot of that in the medical profession and many other specialties with depression and suicide. It was very sad and upsetting to see. But, you know, with all of that aside, uh, we uh, live and breathe a specialty that makes a difference uh, for people at all ages and people that are affected by the most common causes of death and the most common anomalies uh, that a child would be born with. So um, anybody that wants to consider the specialty, I strongly encourage them to do it. It's, uh, been the, it's been the best decision of my life. Well, Dr. Draney, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for taking the time today on Same Surgeon, Different Life. And thank you very much, Tom. Enjoy the holiday season. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.